0: Morning, family. Ever expanding happy family. So, the Passover weekend has come and gone, and what a wonderful time that was. So, this Sunday, we return to our theme over the season of taking a Bible character, a different Bible character every Sunday, and just developing the story and drawing out some of the learning points for us as congregation and Christians. Today, it's Barnabas. Barnabas appears in chapter 4 of Acts. And he disappears in chapter fifteen of Acts. But we are so fortunate that we have him with us today. If memory serves correctly, it was fourteen years ago that he actually visited us. In fact, Victor, who was sitting at the back there at the eight o'clock service, remembered it, and some of you guys have been around a while might remember. So I want you to put your hands together, a warm round of applause for Barnabas. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Barnabas the Bear. Let me briefly tell you about him, and then I will talk about Barnabas of Scripture. About 18 years ago, my daughter, Corin, gave me this little bear for a Father's Day present. So, I remember saying to her, why are you giving a bear, teddy bear, to a grown man? She said, every man needs a teddy bear. Okay. So I called him Barnabas. Why? Because, you know, Barnabas Bear, sounds good. And also, I was still pastoring at that time, and pastors always got to name things biblically, right? So from Scripture, Barnabas the Bear. It wasn't that long afterwards that I got a telephone call from a hospital, very distressing news. Your daughter is in hospital with acute pancreatitis through alcohol abuse. And it was shocking. We hadn't realized what was happening. We hadn't suspected anything. So we rallied around her and so on. She took wonderful responsibility for her condition. And she booked herself in to a rehab center down in the Cape, a good one. Before she went, I took Barnabas. I think he, at that stage he, he was relegated to a cupboard. I took him out and I said, "Corin, this is Barnabas. Remember, his name means son of encouragement. That's what the word Barnabas means. So please take him. And put him on your bed at that rehab centre. And every time you look at him, remember that Jesus is with you to encourage you. And remember that your family are praying and thinking of you every step along the road. She came out wonderfully. She uh, got her life back in order and she came back and said, Here, Dad, here's Barnabas again. Now, on Friday this week, Corinne celebrated 17 years of sobriety. So I'm really chuffed. To be able to talk about Barnabas, which was, I didn't plan it around that at all. I want to turn to the Barnabas of Scripture. It's a character that we can learn a tremendous amount from. I'm going to give you a kind of a, an abbreviated travel log, because he moved around a lot, this chap. It's a travel log without the scenic benefits. So there's a lot of place names and so on, but beyond the place names, listen to the messages of his life. Listen to what is conveyed strongly in in the account of Barnabas, the importance of encouraging and being encouraged. Barnabas was born Joseph of Jewish parents on the island of Cyprus. The island of Cyprus is off the coast of what we call modern-day Turkey, and so that's towards the far east of the Mediterranean. His family were from the tribe of Levi, that this was the tribe from which the priests and the teachers and the worship leaders for the temple in Jerusalem were traditionally drawn. So he came from a good and proud lineage. There were some mining operations, Jewish mining operations, in, in that area of Cyprus many years back. And so his family were probably sent out there. Whatever it was, he finds himself back in Jerusalem. Now, this is uh, imagination, but I think it's reasonably based. I have the strongest suspicion that he was back in Jerusalem on that particular feast of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit birthed church and came in glorious power. Why? Well, you know, for all the three major festivals of Israel, any male over the age of 21 had to come back from wherever they were, come back to the temple in Jerusalem for the festivities. So, you know, what was this good Jewish boy living in Cyprus? What was he doing back in Jerusalem? Chances are, I think, quite strong that he was part of that first crowd. That heard the gospel under the anointing power of the Holy Spirit upon Peter and committed his life and was born again of the Holy Spirit. We do know that he was baptized. And the custom of the day was when you baptize somebody, you gave him a new name. So Joseph was renamed Barnabas, son of encouragement. And boy, did he live up to his name. He uh, epitomized, he lived out the meaning of his new name. Just a quick word on how the church was structured in those days to give you some background. It was in a very, very unique situation. I want you to try and see the scene. Jewish men, and some I suppose they brought their families with them as well, I would think, had come from all around the known world to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. So what did they bring with them? Maybe one week's clothing, maybe a little bag full of food, maybe enough money to buy accommodation for a very limited period of time. And then they got saved. 3,000 have heard the gospel, and 2,000 a couple of days later, there's 5,000 plus Jewish guys who have got saved. What are they going to do? Are they going to go back home? No, because this is where the apostles are. They want to be taught. Who is this Jesus? What is he teaching us? So they met in the temple courts every single day, being taught. Now you can imagine the money must have run out quite quickly, right? Who's feeding these guys? Who's clothing them? Who's putting them up? This is a big crowd, and it's growing all the time. So Barnabas sets a precedent, which we find becomes established in the church for a period of time. He went and sold one of his pieces of land. And he brought the proceeds and gave it to the church to support the new church. And he set a new paradigm, a paradigm of giving, of blessing, of helping people to support the work of the church. He started to live up to his name because that must have been really encouraging. I imagine the leaders thinking, what are we going to do? And along comes Barnabas. Here is a substantial amount of money. Do the work that you have to do. Sometime later, a man called Saul, as you know, he was later called Paul. He encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was persecuting these new Christians. He was on his way to Damascus to hound them, to root them out, and to imprison them, maybe even put some of them to death. On the road to Damascus, he encounters Jesus Christ in a blinding flash of light. And the Lord grabs hold of his life and calls him into service. He's blind for a short period, and then he progresses on to Damascus, where he starts preaching up a storm. And he starts evangelizing, and many of the Jewish folk are brought into the Christian faith. The traditional Jews in that place didn't like this at all. So they start gunning for Saul, to the point where his life was in danger. And this new little group of Christians there got him, helps him escape from Damascus, and sends him off back down to Jerusalem. So what is the first thing that he does when he gets back to Jerusalem? He goes to the apostles and says, here I am. I've come to serve, you know, and God's anointed me to preach the gospel, etc., etc. And what do the church leaders do? Well, what do all good church leaders do? Yeah, but. You're the guy who's been persecuting the church, and you expect us just to trust you. No ways. So they reject him. But Barnabas goes and finds him. Barnabas draws alongside him. Barnabas encourages him and takes him probably by the hand, and takes him to the Jewish apostles, new Christian apostles from the Jewish faith, in Jerusalem and says, I endorse this man. This is a good man. He's genuine. He is born again of the Spirit of God. And the apostles accept him. Barnabas is the one who does this. Son of encouragement. He encourages the church. Encourages Saul. Encourages the apostles. But soon after this, Saul's life is threatened again because the traditionalist Jews there are after him. They don't like what he's doing and what he's saying about this Jesus of Nazareth. So in order to save his life, the apostles send him off to Tarsus, to his hometown. Tarsus is on the coast, quite near to Antioch, which we'll talk about just now, in modern-day Turkey, just above the ancient Syria, around about there. Off Saul goes. But earlier, there was a man called Stephen. You remember the story? He was stoned. And while he's being stoned for for preaching the gospel, he looks up and he says, I see heaven opened and Jesus sitting at the, standing, in fact, he said, at the right hand of the Father. And the Jewish folk there went ballistic about this. Took up stones and stoned Stephen to death. And a major persecution broke out against the church. So the whole church, bar The original apostles scattered and they went off. And many found their way to Antioch, where they started to establish a church in Antioch. And that church grew wonderfully well. In fact, it seemed to be almost in what we would call a time of revival. Because the news of what was happening came back to the apostles in Jerusalem. And the apostles said, wow, there's a revival happening in Antioch, but we need to know this is kosher. So they appointed Barnabas and they said, Barnabas, you go and find out if this is all good. And then come back and tell us. So Barnabas goes off. He sees a tremendous and genuine work of God. Jesus has been proclaimed. The Holy Spirit is working wonderfully in power. People are getting saved. They're becoming disciples of the Most High God. So he not only encourages them, but he stays. He puts his money with his property initially. Now he puts his time behind his words and he stays with them to pastor them and to lead them and to help them build that church here for the first time he's described as a good man full of the spirit and faith you know and as I read those words as I was reading through this passage several times I thought how simple it was in those days The criteria for Christian leadership was, one, that this be a good man. Later on, Paul actually writes uh, to Timothy and he writes to Titus and he gives a list of the criteria for an elder in the church. What constitutes a good man. But a good man who is full of the Spirit, anointed in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm fading in and out here. See if you could uh, have a look at that, please. A man anointed in the power of the Spirit. And a man of faith, who is prepared to believe what God says, and then to act on it. If you look at the criteria for appointing even deacons in the early church, what was the criteria? That They should be godly men, full of the Spirit, and wisdom. The criteria? Good men, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith. And those men went out... And built the church that thousands of thousands, two thousand years later has covered the face of this earth. And is the greatest force to be reckoned with in the earth. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Barnabas stays with them. And he starts to minister. And it grows. And that congregation in Antioch becomes very substantial. And again, you can imagine him saying, my goodness, how am I going to handle this, you know? Uh, They're looking to me for leadership, and I've only got one pair of hands, and there's only one of me. Oh, what about my friend Saul? So he goes up to Tarsus, which is up the coast. Not not that far. And he goes up and he calls Saul. Saul has been languishing there for somewhere between seven and ten years. Can you imagine the encouragement? When he sees his old friend Barnabas, and Barnabas says, Be encouraged, my son. I'm bringing you back into ministry. You have value and you have worth in the kingdom of God. Come, help me in this task. Help me grow this church. So the two of them go back to Antioch and for one full year they minister together. And the church absolutely thrives and flourishes and in fact becomes a real force to be reckoned with in that area. I want to make the point quite strongly so you understand what comes next, that Barnabas was the senior in this partnership. He was what we would call the lead elder. How do I know that? By his behavior, by the fact that he went and called Saul, by the fact that his name is mentioned consistently in the earlier account before that of Saul. It's always Barnabas and Saul. And again, the custom was to address first the senior and then the other. So it's not Saul and Barnabas. It's Barnabas and Saul. In Antioch, Christians, up to that point, had been called the people of the way. I must tell you, I have a sneaking sadness that we are not still called people of the way. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But the non-believers in Antioch wanted a word that they could use to disparage these new believers. So they called them Christians. Those Christians. And they didn't realize that they were creating a name with great honor. Christians, Christed ones, the bearers of the Christ. That happened right then in Antioch. What happened next was a group of prophets arrived from Jerusalem, and one of them, a man called uh, Agabus, stood up and he prophesied that a terrible drought, a terrible famine was going to sweep over the whole of the Roman world. That there would be great distress and great lack of food and so on and so forth. What did the church under Barnabas' leadership then do? They didn't wait for the famine to break. They didn't say, okay, well, you know, let's see how this pans out and if we can be of assistance later, we'll try. No. They immediately took a collection. They immediately got together resources and cash and food and whatever. And Barnabas and Saul personally went and took those provisions to the church in Jerusalem. Imagine how engaged they must have been. The prophetic word is just past the lips of the prophet. There will be a great famine. And the church is immediately coming back to mother church in Jerusalem and saying, you're going to have a tough time, guys. Here, God has made provision already before you even need it. Quick summary of Barnabas's ministry so far. He encourages the church with these generous funds from the sale of the land. He encourages Saul when the apostles rejected him. He encourages the new church in Antioch and stays to help it grow. He encourages Paul again when he goes and brings him out of his languishing in Tarsus and brings him into effective ministry. And he encourages the church in Jerusalem by going back and bringing God-given provisions. This is all at the beginning of his ministry. What an encouragement he was. Barnabas. Son of encouragement. But don't you think that this is kind of how we should all be? Isn't this something we really should be looking into his life and emulating almost as a a normal practice? Are we called to be critics or encouragers? Are we called to be cynical or people of faith? Are we called to act with faith and belief when the Holy Spirit whispers in our ear and says, do this, do that? That should be our starting position, I believe. Barnabas, son of encouragement, sends the message to me. Sunshine, you're called to encourage. You're called to build up before anything else. That's part of your calling. Okay, back to the Acts account. The church in Antioch grew and grew, became influential under Barnabas' leadership. And then one day, something that must have been quite dramatic for them happens. We know it was a cross-cultural church. We know there were people from different race groups in leadership there. Among them were teachers and prophets. They're having a prayer meeting. They're all together and they're praying and fasting. And in the midst of this, the Holy Spirit speaks. I don't know how he speaks. I'm assuming it's through a word of prophecy because the scriptures make a point of telling us that the prophetic gifts were in operation there. And the Holy Spirit says this, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. How did the church under Barnabas' leadership respond? Instantly. They didn't kind of have a convention. All right, we'll hold a meeting to discuss how to interpret this word. And and then in a year's time, we might decide how we should raise funds for it. And and then all that stuff. Uh -uh. They laid hands on Paul, still called Saul, and Barnabas, and they set them aside. It appears to me reading this account that Saul and Barnabas didn't actually know what to do then. They just knew they'd been called. Why? Because they go and get John Mark, who's also from Cyprus, and it must have been Barnabas who said, well, look, I'm from Cyprus, let's go and start there. I'm well connected. I know the people there, and my mother's cooking needs to die for all. <laughs> So off they went to Cyprus. The Spirit called, and they responded as best they could, but they did it straight away. There was no dilly-dallying. Men of faith, filled with the Spirit. They arrived in Cyprus. They went across Cyprus. on not a big island, but they went from one end to the other. And they wound up at a sort of medium-sized city called Paphos. And there they encountered a Jewish sorcerer, he's described, and a false prophet. His name is Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar means son of. Jesus is Jesus. So the chances are he's masquerading as a son of Jesus. Okay, the year is about 48 AD, around about there. So, if he's pretending to be an unknown son of Jesus, of course, Jesus had no sons, as we know, he wasn't married or anything like that. If he was pretending to be this, then he was probably about 19, maybe 18, maybe 20 years old. That's about it. Now, despite his age or lack of age, he had got in tight with the Roman proconsul, the, the ruler for, for, for Rome in that area. Very, very influential officer. And when... Saul and Barnabas came to the consul, proconsul, and tried to share the gospel with them, he opposed them. He stood in their way saying, no, this is rubbish, don't listen to him, etc. What happens next dramatically alters the relationship between Saul and Barnabas and sets the church on a new trajectory, sets them on a new and dynamic path. I want to read it to you. It's in Acts chapter 13. And it's from verse 9 through to verse 12. I think they're going to probably put it up on the screen for you as well. From verse 9. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamus. That's also his name, Bar Jesus, also known as Elamus. And he said, you are a child of the devil. You are an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time. And you will be unable to see the light of the sun. And immediately, mist and darkness came over him. And he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teachings about the Lord. A mighty, powerful, wonderful miracle. But it wasn't Barnabas who wrought it. It was Saul who stepped forward. A role reversal took place right there. And God authenticated with a tremendous miracle. A miracle that won over the key Roman leader in the area. And brought him in to the church. Let me just summarize what happened. First of all, Saul is no longer called Saul from that moment. He's now called Paul. Paul takes center stage. And Barnabas has to step off the stage. The consul believes in Jesus. And then listen to how verse 13, the very next verse after this account starts. It says this. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga. And his companions. Barnabas had been the lead up to that very moment. Barnabas was the senior. And now he's just relegated to a companion. He's one of the companions of the great Paul, the apostle. It must have presented Barnabas with a major lesson. And this is a lesson which I want to draw out with, with as much strength as I can this morning. It's a lesson for everybody and anybody in church leadership. It's a lesson for anybody in any kind of spiritual leadership. It's a lesson for fathers and mothers who are in leadership in their homes. Of people who are in church works or ministry works or whatever it is. If under the name of Jesus you are a leader then this is a lesson that we have to learn. The leader must learn the lesson of John the Baptist. Do you remember John the Baptist when he had baptized Jesus? And Jesus was drawing a crowd and the crowds were leaving John. And one of John's disciples came and said, how can you put up with this? Everybody's following this Jesus. How did John respond? He said this, I must become less. He must become more. Barnabas had to learn this. This was his moment where he had to learn this. This was his time to step back and to allow God's chosen one to move forward into the center of history and to become Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. He had to learn that. Do you remember back in Antioch, the Holy Spirit had said, set apart for me Paul, Barnabas, and Saul for the work that I have for them. This was the moment of their calling. This was the moment that Paul now, called Paul, became Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. This is what the Holy Spirit had called him to. What then had he called Barnabas to? He had called Barnabas to this same moment. He had called Barnabas to develop Paul to build him up, to encourage him, to tutor him, to mentor him, to take him on travels, to expose him to the great works of God. And then to release him into the world's greatest ministry that's been since Jesus. A ministry that shook the world and resulted in most of our New Testament being documented for us. This was Barnabas's call. And he fulfilled it. It seems to me as I read this account that this was the climax and goal of Barnabas's ministry. It came to a high point here. It also seemed to come to an end here. Let me articulate the major learning points for us that they don't slip by unnoticed. One, a major role of anyone in leadership in Jesus' name. As I said earlier, be it in the family, be it in the church be it in society, whatever it is, a major role is to be an encourager and a developer of the next generation of leaders. That's what leaders are called to do above all other things. Build up the next generation that will hold up the torch of the Lord Jesus Christ in a dark world. If we fail to do that, we fail at one of our largest tasks that is assigned to us. Leaders are called to be encouragers before anything else. Those who build and release. Two, a major sign of success in Christian leadership is when the ones that we mentor become greater than us. That's not a threat. It's the mark of greater success. When people look and say, Wow, look at so-and-so. And and we know that we have mentored that person, taught them everything they know. Encouragement, them in development. We should look back and say, thank you God, my job's done. Maybe we can go on and do the same again. And again, be it a daughter, be it a son, be it a minister in the church, whatever it may be. And the third major lesson is, this requires humility and it requires a big dose of selflessness. The thing that kills churches The thing that kills Christian families faster than anything I've ever seen is pride in leadership. A leadership that wants to take the glory, take center stage, and be the ones who are the man. Families suffer from this. Churches suffer. For they fail to see that their greatest success is when the ones they mentor come through into a wonderful new ministry in Jesus And the last point, and Barnabas was about to find this out. This transition, this moving off center stage and allowing somebody else on, is often painful and it's often fraught with difficulties. That's the nature of it. For it goes totally contrary to our sinful natures. So we struggle sometimes in in actually doing this. Okay, from Paphos on Cyprus, Paul and his team, Paul and his team, Set sail for Perga, where John Mark, that's Barnabas' cousin, deserted them. It doesn't tell us why he deserted. You know, this is kind of like after a high point. I mean, he must have been really encouraged when he saw these wonderful things. Why did he desert? I have a suspicion. Reading between the lines, I think he might have will have taken offence. He might have said, "What? My cousin Barnabas was the leader here." He was the anointed one of God. Now where is he? Look how he's been treated now. He's just carrying the baggage. He used to sit at the bow of the ship. Now he's sitting in the bulge bump. This is not right. And he deserts. Whatever the reasons are, he leaves them. The team go into a place called Pisidian Antioch. And again, something very significant happens there. Their practice is that whenever they go to a new place, they go to the synagogue. You are aware that almost all of the first Christians were Jewish, huh? Eh? So they would go first to the synagogues, and they would preach Jesus there. So they go to the synagogue here in, in, this, in Perga, and they're invited by the synagogue rulers with these words. Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. So who was the son of encouragement? Who was the man who had a proven track record of encouragement? Who was the man who was best equipped to encourage them? No, but he doesn't step forward. Paul steps forward. And Paul preaches his first recorded sermon. The Jews who hear it were interested for a while. And then they got itchy and they started moaning. The Gentiles And the Gentiles responded. The great ministry to the Gentiles burst onto the world stage. And Paul had to be the one who preached that day. Not Barnabas. Had to be Paul. And it was Paul. But I'm sure it must have cost Barnabas. I'm sure he must have sat there thinking, what's happening? He must have been upset or hurt or something. Unless he was a a saint and so far I haven't found a Saint Barnabas around. If he was just human like the rest of us, he must have been a little bit emotional turmoil over this. But it had to be. The Gentiles believed. Now the team journeys on to a place called Iconium and then from there to Lystra. And here they meet a man who was born lame. So he had never walked in his life. Who is it that steps forward and heals him? Paul, not Barnabas. God works this mighty miracle through Paul. The Gentiles in that area were highly superstitious you know, with all the, all the Greek gods, etc. And they say, whoa, the gods have come down to earth. Through this, These guys must be gods. And what do they do? They call Paul Hermes because of his silver tongue. And they call Barnabas Zeus. And they want to worship. They want to sacrifice. And Paul and Barnabas are really offended. At this. They, they tear their clothing and they say, don't do this. This is blasphemous. You cannot do this. But this didn't appease the Jews in the area. The Jews said, this is blasphemy. They took stones and they stoned Paul. The only advantage for Barnabas now of not being sent to stage is he didn't get stoned. Paul gets stoned, dragged outside the city and left for dead. The disciples gather around him. God brings him back. He's recovered from this stoning unto death almost. And they go from that place... And they start their road back. They visit a place called Derby, and then they start their way back to Antioch. They're going back home. They're going back to complete their mission. They're going back to tell the apostles these are all the wonderful things that have happened. But you know what they do? They stop at every place they've been to before. And they encourage the believers there. And they build them up in their most holy faith. And they strengthen them in the way of the Lord Jesus And they appoint for them elders so that the churches can thrive and flourish. And then they go back to Antioch. They report back, and the scriptures merely say that they stayed a long time in Antioch. So time passes, and then Acts 15 verse 36 starts with these words. Sometime later, Paul, not Barnabas, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back. Let's go and do another trip, Barnabas. Let's go and visit those guys again and and encourage them and build them up, etc. And Barnabas must have said, well, yes, okay, but I want to take John Mark with us, my cousin. And Paul says, over my dead body. No ways, Jose. He's the young guy who deserted us. There's no ways I'm going to take that deserter back. And the scriptures say that they had such a sharp disagreement that they went their different ways. Paul took somebody else, made his own team, and went on back on what's now known as his second missionary journey. Barnabas and his cousin, they went back to Cyprus. They went back home to mom's cooking. Probably deeply upset, I would think. The fourth point that I made earlier about these transitions are sometimes painful and problematic was proven out now. You know, there's church tradition and stories that they've they, they solved their differences and they became great buddies and all that. There's nothing in Scripture to support that. That's just a comforting thought that we like to think about. It seems to be a pretty permanent schism that happened here. There are stories about Barnabas going on to great things and there's church traditions that say, oh, he became the bishop of this place and a great teacher in some other place. But it's all just myths and fancy for the Scriptures are silent. Paul makes passing reference to him in three of his letters. But it is a passing reference to Barnabas and in totally different context. Otherwise, the scriptures are silent. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, has moved away into scripturally insignificance. Why? His job was done. His job was done. He had encouraged the church everywhere he went. He had taken hold of Saul, the persecutor of the church, and mentored him into Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And he had stood back and launched this incredible, wonderful, earth-changing ministry. What a contribution he made. What a privilege he had. Not of being Barnabas the encouragers per se, But Barnabas, the one who released God's plans and purposes into a hungry world. Thank you, Barnabas. Great job. Great job. There are some schools in our day and some hospitals called St. Barnabas. But I looked at the records of the Roman Catholic Church and they've never deified Barnabas. I'm sure he's eternally grateful for that. So there is no St. Barnabas. There's no monument to Barnabas anywhere, And you can't even get a little medallion like a St. Christopher, which if you were inclined to, which I hope we wouldn't, you would wear around your neck as a reminder. There's nothing. He's gone. But we need to remember him. Well, I'm very fortunate. Uh, I have Barnabas. So let me tell you what happens to this little gentleman every single day. After I've made my bed, I pile the two pillars on it, And I put him up like a little prince on his throne. And he sits there surveying his domain. And when I go to sleep at 9 o'clock sharp, nobody dare phone me after that. (laughs) Then I put my spare pillow next to the bed and I put him on it. And there he sits looking out at the world until the sun rises again. And every time I look at him, I'm reminded of my daughter and what happened there. But I'm reminded, reminded even more. And my first call is to be an encourager and not a criticizer. I don't know about you, but I have to be reminded of that. I have a natural tendency to be cynical and critical. And I have had to learn through a lifetime and daily, that's not what I'm called to be. I'm called to be an encourager, one who builds, one who releases people and sees them grow. I'm going to ask you to just pray for us as a people. Please serve.